Hello and welcome to episode 57 of the Boss Podcast. I'm Kirk Bailey and this week as I rummage around the stacks of Boss Talks to share with you fine listeners, I welcome Promise Phelan, CEO of Tap Influence, with her talk from 2016 looking at the ping pong fallacy. Business of Software podcast, sharing sessions from our conferences and discussions with software people that will make you think. Find out more at businessofsoftware.org. A sustainable business culture is only possible if you consider what is below the surface first. It's too easy to confuse fancy perks and fun office spaces as the mark of a good culture. The reality is, Perks are meaningless without deep thought about the behaviours you encourage within your workplace. An ownership culture, transparency of performance and compensation, clarity about what it takes to win, and building winning habits amongst your team. Culture is reinforced by strong leaders with a willingness to address some of the daily things that let emotional triggers prevent us from building a great company. Promise is building a loyal team at Tap Influence innovating a product area that's entirely uncharted and helping evolve how businesses get heard by consumers. Prior to Tap Influence, Phelan was Chief Revenue Officer at the Resumator, CEO of the Phelan Group, and served as CEO of Upmo, an enterprise talent management SaaS system. We think she's pretty badass, and I'm sure you will too. Happy listening. Hey guys, I'm Promise Phelan, and I'm the CEO of an incredible company called Tap Influence. And whenever I give these speeches, I have like my bullet points and my PR person's here somewhere, so I will try not to drop many F-bombs today. Uh, but I think she knows how that is. But um, my goal is to, to talk about, um, about culture. And I don't stand before, I stand before you as a successful entrepreneur, but not as someone that I would say, I have nailed culture. What I will talk about instead are the lessons that I've learned um, becoming the CEO of a startup that had been in existence for about seven years. And so I'll talk about the transformation that we went through as a company, I'll talk about our growth, talk about our lessons learned, and then I wanna show you an image. Um, I love one of the things that Michael said, uh, Michael Pryor said about, you know, um, at one point when you're building an organization, you have to formalize and codify ideas because you have more than 10 people in a room. It's not just four bros figuring things out and coding on the weekend but it's an actual organization. So I'm gonna show you a, a concept that we built um, that I will take credit for here because no one from TAP. Um, it's called the iceberg. And so I'll talk about what that means for us and, and how we got there. And I hope that we get to have a good time um, as we go through this. Excellent, that's me. Uh, and um, so I guess that's my bullet point. So I'm from Texas, as you can tell. Um, I uh, grew up in Texas, and uh, so there may be y'alls and things happening later on. And then I moved to Silicon Valley. Um, I started a company in college that I actually sold, which um, I'll tell someone else's story later. And I'd gotten into um, to one of the business schools there and decided I'm just going to go directly from undergrad to grad school. And um, this was in 97. And so um, in 98, I hear about this thing called the Silicon Valley, and I had met Mark Cuban. And so someone said, why don't you go up there um, and go be part of a great technology company? So the company I chose was called BEA Systems. And at the time, uh, we, we took the company public while I was there, which was amazing. 
And um, I got to do I got to do M and A. I got to do all these different things. But I saw the I saw the valley, and I saw the trajectory of the stock market grow. And we were all internet millionaires, and you know, sleeping in our offices. Um, Marissa was not alone. A lot of us were doing that, and we were building this great company. And so I learned a lot about kind of the dark parts of culture, where you know you're working 100 hours a week and you're not having fun, but you're on a mission. And so that was the beginning of my career. And so I left BEA in 2002 and launched my own company as a services company. And we became a technology company. And I sold that business in 08. And so I saw you know, going from um, nothing, being a founder, to growing a company, and then to actually selling it. And from then on, I joined companies that had been in existence. So I joined as CEO or chief revenue officer. And then in 2015, I joined Tap Influence. But there was something different and ominous. Are you ready? I moved from the Silicon Valley to Boulder, Colorado. Right, where there are literally two black people. <laughs> OK? I got there, and my husband, my husband is, is Caucasian. He was like, this is amazing. He had his mountain bike on his shoulder, and he started riding. And then I, everywhere I went, people were like, are you promised? And I was like, well, that, yes, I am. <laughs> And then I realized, oh my god, the joke is so on me, right? Like, there's two of us, and I saw him across the street, and I was like, yeah. <laughs> um, but it was, it was such a different culture. So my first day on the job, I go into the office, and I get there at 7.30. I'm the CEO. I, I arrive early, and I kind of open the office. I bought donuts. And then um, a little bit later, you know, Office kind of got going, and by 10, the office was going. And I was like, this is weird. And then um, I left my office at 5 o'clock, 5.15, looked out the office, and there was no one there. And I thought, this is really interesting. OK. Boulder was a different culture than what I had grown up in. And Boulder was going to be different. We were, we were you know, when I would say things, it just we're in a different place. And so that was a transformation that I had to make. I was taking over for a founder. I was professionalizing this incredible company. And I was also bringing a little bit of that intensity that needed to be there because the investors were not from Boulder. They were from the East Coast. And so how do you build culture when your head is shaved, you're one of two black people, and you're from the most intense culture in the world from a technology perspective. Sorry, Boston, don't hate. I'm here. Um, <laughs> Silicon Valley is 1.2. Um, but it was different. And so building a culture as, a, as, take, as the new CEO of a company, a woman, startup, we're going from a services company to a software company. There were all these dynamics that were happening at once, which created a lot of friction. And so as humans, what is the first thing we do when we enter into a situation where we feel like people are different than us. What do we do? Right, we, we go inside. We try to protect ourselves. What else do we do? Boom, we try to find allies. What else? I did that. And it's unprofessional for you to bring that up in a professional environment, but I was there. I did have a flask in my office, just so repasado is my drink, if anyone wants to bring a little bit later. Um, but you also try to get people to like you. It's a natural human instinct. And I know that we're all business people. We raise money. 
I've raised 50, 60 million dollars in my career, and you, you sell businesses, you code, you build stuff, but your initial reaction when, when you're in an environment of people who you think do not like you is to turn those tides. And so I was like, what do people in Boulder like? Oh, they like ski days, and they like you know, these things, and, and they wanna go do this and leave early and work from home, and so I did all that stuff. My initial reaction was to do all those things. And then I realized, no, no, wait, I'm actually building a 100-year company. I want to build a company that creates technology that removes traditional advertising from our experience. I moved from the valley, left my husband there to come and spend you know, however long, working long hours to turn this company around, not to be liked. But I did it because I wanted to create an organization where consumers spoke on behalf of brands. I wanted to create a company where there, no, there were no more ads, no more banners, no more, you know, just none of that nonsense. I wanted to build a 100-year company where people could have their entire careers, where my mother, my brother, my children could all go and work and be part of. I wanted to build a 100-year company. And I wasn't going to do that by starting out from a place of, does everyone like me? And so I said, okay, I'm gonna lead a cultural transformation in this organization. I'm also gonna have to raise a lot of money because we didn't have much. I'm going to do a bunch of things at the same time, and so it was exhausting. I'm actually 28, I just look 40. <laughs> but it was, it was the beginning of taking a company that had so much incredible potential, and then realizing that potential, and then being okay with the fact that it wasn't going to be a popularity contest but it was going to be a life game change for me, but also value creating for the investors, which is part of our job, value, value creation for the employees, which is part of the job, but more importantly, value creating for our customers, which I don't care what anyone tells you, you're not building shareholder value, you're building customer value, and I couldn't do that from the perspective of, is everyone gonna like me? Actually, I want the customers to love me. And so that's where we started. So I built this, this concept called the iceberg. And again, we were changing our business model from services to SaaS. We were going from, you know, kind of a, 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 kind of a more moderate pace to what I call a blend of intensity with intimacy. And Boulder bringing the intimacy, the Valley bringing the intensity. So I built something called the iceberg. And what I was trying to convey was the people who were submitting requests and who were giving me their feedback was like, we want better food, we want sriracha cashews, I don't know why, but those are delicious. Um, if you've ever had them, they're, they're fantastic. But they wanted things that I couldn't figure out, but just didn't jive with me. They wanted a ping pong table, we wanted sea days, we wanted all these things that I thought were interesting, but we're not gonna build a 100-year company. So I started at the bottom and I said, what's the most important thing every company needs? It needs a strong vision, but it also needs financial resources. And so in 2015, I joined in April, we grew 400% in one year. We changed our business model from services to SaaS. For all of you finance and CEOs, we went from a 30% gross margin to 82% in, in three quarters. It was massive. And we did that not because we just wanted to, but because we were building this 100-year company and we needed at the bottom, as you can see, we needed resources. And so I fundraised in front of everyone. 
after every after every group of meetings, I would say, here's what we learned, here are the pivots we're gonna make, here's what didn't work, here's what did work, here's what you should be thinking about, hey marketing, hey sales, here's what you can learn from this. And we successfully raised a um, $14 million round, and we did so, I think we quadrupled, or yeah, we quadrupled the valuation of the business in, in that short period of time, it was amazing. And so then people said, great, we've done this, now we're all the perks, do we get to work from home more, do we get to do all these things, do we get, you know, ski trips and, um, I remember talking to one of the employees and she said, you know, I don't want much, but I, I think we should widen our, our dog policy. And I was like, what does that mean? She was like, I think the company should adopt its own dog. And I was like, you're kidding. Like, <laughs> we can hardly feed ourselves. Um, but that was, that, those were perks. And people had heard about the, the slide at Box and they thought, are you going to get us a slide? No, I'm not going to get a slide. For anyone who knows who've been to the box offices, they have a, a huge slide. But as a culture, we had to move toward what we defined as culture, which is the behavior that we reward. And so that meant starting with financial resources, and then we created something called an ownership culture. So I exposed the cap table to the employees. Oh yeah. Not individual ownership, but groups of owners. Who owned our company? And what mattered to those people? I talked about my ownership and what it was tied to. I talked about what happens when we exit. And for a lot of the folks in Boulder, they hadn't been through a successful exit. I'd been through three. And so I walked everyone through, okay, here are the details of what happens. And then the question that invariably comes is, you know where I'm going, right? Like, well then how much do I own, right? And so every employee now wants to know how much do I own and what does that mean? And what happens and how do I get more and, and why do they have more than I do? And so it was, it was opening up ownership, not only from an equity perspective, but also from a responsibility and accountability. And that's when the change happened. That's when it went from people saying, do we, you know, do we need, are we gonna have pizza four days a week? Are we gonna do this? Are we gonna have that? Are we gonna go on a trip? To people wanting to understand what our TCV was. And those were our engineers who wanted to know what is the average value of every deal? What is the average value? That, what are we spending on marketing and why? So every, every month when we do our, our all hands, I show our financials. All of the dirty bits, as the British say. All of it, everything. And not because I wanna show off, but I want them to understand the trade-offs that we're making as an organization and where we need to optimize. And so the ownership culture is not only like how much you own, but it's like I want you to care. I want you to, I want you to care and I don't want to be the person who has to walk in the office and say, you should be doing more. I want that motivation to come from within. And so that meant a lot of exposure of the business and a lot of exposure of how we did things. So that was pretty significant. And then more transparency. So every, you know, whenever we have a group of new hires, I sit down with those new hires, I tell them the story of the company, I talk about the 100-year vision, and getting everyone on the same page. Decoding what works. So. There's a study that came out today um, that LinkedIn did of 10,000 uh, employees. Did anyone see that study? It came out this morning. Okay, um, I need to get you all a little bit more dialed into social, but that's okay. Um, this study essentially said that most people leave organizations because they don't see their career path. And they don't see that if they work harder, they'll get better career opportunities or better choices. And so I sat down with a group of CEOs and we had a four hour debate about 
culture versus perks. And what, what you think when you're building companies, and I know some people are at different phases of that, but one of the things that you feel responsible for is like, what's the energy in the office? How are the salespeople? Are people happy? And, but you do a survey and you get different information than what you were expecting. Some people are happy, some aren't. The same people have issues or issues are coming up. But what it became about is I started asking people, do you believe that you could fulfill your career aspirations here? And that was the most telling question. And so I asked that of all my direct reports at the end of every one-to-one -one that I have with them. Do you, believe that you can, do you believe you can fulfill your career aspirations here? Because ultimately, that's what people want. And as CEO, that's my job, is to build a successful company where people can go from an entry-level person to move laterally or move upward, but build their career here. And so I believe that the core of culture is as CEO, as leaders in this organization, I think a lot, a lot of people in here who are founders and CEOs, we have to figure out how to get our teams to win. Like deep, we have to figure out how to get our teams to win. And if we can get our company and our teams to win, we can help managers, help individuals, and that's what truly drives a sticky culture from the bottom up. You guys with me? So, this is not for everyone. I think there are some companies that put perks first. I just couldn't do that because ultimately we wouldn't get the outcomes that we wanted. So the iceberg was something that's printed out on the walls and people hold me accountable to it now, which sucks. Um, uh, so then we started focusing on winning as a habit. So, you know, micro wins, big wins, but also lots of lessons learned. So, hey, that failed, but what do we learn from it? And what do we do differently next time? And you won, but it costs the other person, you know, there's a perpetual balance, as you guys know, between sales and customer success now, where you, know, you can bring in lots of great customers, but do they stick and are they happy? And so there was such this, insert, this focus on like closing deals and that was the win. Well, we hadn't identified what it means for customer success to win. And what do we celebrate? What's the equivalent? We have this big, massive freaking gong in our office. And whenever a salesperson closes a deal, it used to be like, oh, I don't want And now they're like. <laughs> but we had to build that and are building that for every single team. What does it mean for marketing to win? What does it mean for the CEO to win? What does it mean for our office team, our ops team to win? So really dialing in, what is, what is the winning as a habit and what's the reward system? And so we are moving up this, up this ladder and one of the things that um, isn't here because it's somewhat private, but, um, oh, it is up there, okay. So um, it's all out, baby. It's all here for you. Um, is we were in some really cheap space. And I don't know if you guys are, are, are like me, but like I wanna preserve our capital and get as much out of that capital as possible. So I always tell the team, the longer it takes, the more, the more money it takes, the less we own. And um, so we have space that literally, if anyone knows real estate, it's like five bucks a square foot. And so um, someone heard how much we were paying for that and they saw me writing, signing the, the lease renewal and they were like, you realize that we have duct tape all over the floor? And I was like, yes. 
and it's five bucks a square foot. <laughs> so we're never leaving. My family's gonna move into this place, <laughs> right? Like we're all, my whole, everyone's moving. Texas people, we're all coming. The West Indies, anyone you got, we're here. Um, and as our PR person knows, our office is just the pits. And so we, I said, we'll paint it and then we'll put a couch over. So as you walk through our office, there are like couches everywhere and there are rugs and you have to, you're diverted. So um, we, have, we have just a crazy office. And so one of the things my team said, look, when we, when we get to a certain level of growth and we get a certain number of customers, when we get to 400 companies running on our platform, um, we would like some new office space. And so I thought about it and you know, obviously looking at capital all the time. So one of the things that we, we're doing right now, and this, I think this is gonna be online tomorrow, um, we have just signed a lease for some, some, some delicious space, which uh, costs an order of magnitude more than our current space and has no holes in the floor. But, and this, this sounds terrible, but I, I wanted our team, until we'd reached certain revenue inflection points, I didn't want them to take advantage of our capital. Because one of the great things about Silicon Valley High level of experimentation, high level of failure, tons of successful people, people work hard, inventions come from there, all this great stuff. But I did not want entitlement to ever be part of my culture. I didn't want people to feel like, oh, we should have this and we should have that. Today we get lunch one day a week, and once we reach certain profitability milestones, we'll go to three times a week. And I walk people through that. And I know this seems time intensive, but building a culture of ownership means that everyone's part of those decisions. And so I'll go back and announce this tomorrow, um, uh, Wednesday when I'm back in town, but this will, be a, this will be a big deal for people because they'll feel like we actually achieved something and that's how this is all working out. So expose our financials, highly transparent, that would not be me, um, highly transparent culture where we talk about you know, what's happening inside the business. Winning is a fundamental habit, which I love this photo, it's hilarious. Um, but it is a habit. How, what does it take to win? And then the reward system that supports that for our employees. Individual learning and growth. So uh, we've, we've taken to, um, you know, we have a, a basically a, a performance system that's not really a performance system, it's a career system. So every quarter we do something called 50-25-25 which is where are you spending half your time, where are you spending 25% of your time, and how, and, and how do those, those two 25% and the 50% tie back to the overall company's goals, and how does it tie back to your individual career plan? And so each manager now is responsible for building a career, not a ladder, but a lattice with their, with their teams. So what are the things you wanna do, and how does that tie back to the business, and how does that tie back to what you're doing every quarter? And so we've taken an approach of focusing on learning and development as part of the overall company goals and then measuring that on a quarterly basis. So as you can imagine, uh, it's a lot of work, but it's, it's a good thing. And then now we're getting to perks. The company's grown. We've answered a lot of questions that I've, I have about the business and we're moving into the perks phase. So um, I will launch a survey in the next couple of weeks where I will ask people what their perks are and I have a good idea um, now it's getting close to winter, we'll be doing a lot of skiing. But this was a process of getting everyone aligned around who we are, how we build a 100-year company, and then what our fundamental vision is for the, for the culture of the business and not perks. It meant separating apart this idea that culture equals perks 
but that culture actually is what's sustainable, what grows people, and what helps them achieve their own career objectives. So what role do I play in this is, you know, there's a lot of focus on, as CEO, um, there are kind of three things that I'm always thinking about. One is, uh, you know, are we, are we creating customer value? Two, um, do we have enough money? That's always a question, regardless of what anyone tells you. It's on your mind a lot. And where will the next, mount, where will the next money come from? But now I think a lot about, okay, we're building this organization, this 100-year company. How do I garden inside the business? How do I support the career aspirations of my employees? And I think it actually is making me a better CEO. Because I think about, how do I spend time with my product guys? What value am I adding to them individually? How do I spend time with my marketing team? How do I spend time with sales? I spend a lot, half my time is out with customers. So the constant gardener is just a concept that I live with, which is that I'm always planting and nourishing the careers and the overall objectives of my team because that is part of our culture. So we kind of talked about this, but it's a roadmap now. So it's something that's on the walls inside the organization. It's something that we revisit on a regular basis, and we're moving up. So in, 20, in 2015, we started at the bottom. And my goal is that by the first quarter of 2017, we're at the perks level. We are playing ping pong. We do have fewer holes in uh, our carpet, but it, it's, a different, it's a different organization. Any questions? Thanks so much for a, a great talk. The, um, when I was watching the iceberg image and listening to your talk, and you sort of talk about perks and start moving more towards, and the line you had early was, culture is the behavior that you reward. Yes. Um, it seemed like the story you're really telling is one of the icebergs sinking, right? Where instead of having perks that were above the line, you were converting them into rewards that were below the line and reinforcing the culture. And that seemed to be the arc of what you were describing I'm wondering, was this intentional on your part or something you were discovering along the way? Yeah, good. it's a great question. I mean, I, I think this is what most, a lot of people, how they define culture is, are people having fun? Are we going on, are we going on off-sites? Or do we have a ping pong table? It's all those things. I mean, um, was it Dropbox that has the panda? Um, right. And, that, that I, I believe that that is the cultural um, kind of collective consciousness is that, that culture is about fun. That's what the definition of what it's become, but it's not sustainable. You can have a fun, great culture where everyone works from home and there's tons of flexibility and we have you know, sriracha peanuts every day, but the company fundamentally is not healthy. And so it, it was, um, I think it was a reaction as a CEO taking over an organization, having to transform it and be very unpopular. Um, I did park by the trash cans. I was like, okay, is my car gonna be all right? Um, during one period. But um, no, I don't think it's the iceberg sinking. I think it's exposing that below all of these perks has to be a healthy company with a healthy ecosystem, with, with, a, with good growth, and with a team of people who have the right skills and capabilities to take it to a 100-year mark. So um, I think the arc is that we are in a, we're in a time where culture has become defined by perks, and that is not sustainable. Did I answer your question? Question. 
So as you know, most companies aren't so open and transparent about sharing financials or anything like that. And I can't help but think why that is. So yeah. what do you think is the downside of doing that? What are some of the challenges you've had of being so open, transparent about financials and about your decision making? Um, so the best story, the best part, um, so we had one meeting and we've got a guy who, um, didn't go to college, and he's in the meeting, and he's, he gets, I'm, I'm presenting, he gets up, and he kind of looks at the numbers, and he goes, wait, is the sales team paying for itself? And he turns to our head of sales, he's like, are you paying for yourself? And, and so what I loved is like, after that, he pulled the, the head of sales aside, and he was like, hey, could we do this and this better? Is there a way that we can reduce CAC? So the good part is, people take ownership and accountability for improving things, and that's felt across the entire business. I think the downside is when things in moments don't go well, people are upset about that. Um, and then when things go really well, they want to know, okay, where are the perks, right? So um, I, I don't see, I mean, when we're at 200, 400, 500 employees, I will definitely pare down how much information is going to be useful to the company. But for now, more is better. And the upside is people hold, hold themselves and everyone else accountable. The, the challenge is um, they also don't suffer fools when it comes to results. And I kind of like that. I kind of like that. Hi. Hi, Promise. Uh, I love the fighting of entitlement culture. I think that's yeah. awesome. How do you tell the story of the culture uh, externally, say on your website? So I know that most technology companies are kind of known like Google has a slide, blah, 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 and that might bring people in. Like, do you tell the culture story to people outside of the organization, like the iceberg metaphor or a version of it? We're figuring that out. Um, can I tell you guys a very personal story? Okay. So, she's like, hell yeah. And, and why haven't you done that so far? What is this? I paid to get in here. Um, thank you. Thank you, star of the show. So, um, so I'm a big trail runner. So I'm out trail running, and again, I'm one of two African-American people in Boulder, and I'm out trail running, and um, this is back in September of last year. And, and mind you, we went through this huge transformation as a company. It was like, it wasn't slow, it was like, boom, you know, just a business model, culture, what have you. And I'm on the trail, and um, a guy comes up behind me, he goes, are you Promise? And I'm like, oh, man, <laughs> yes. And he's like, oh, hey, you know, I work at the law firm where you work, da, 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 da. And I said, oh, it's great. And so we kind of run a little bit. And he goes, hey, um, I was on Glassdoor, and I was like, oh, sucky, here it comes. And he says, I read a couple of, of reviews. And I was like, seriously? And I was like, they were delicious, right? He was like, not so much. You should go look at them. And so um, there were bad reviews. And they were from people who, um, who, had, who had left the business. And so imagine you've left a successful career in Silicon Valley. You've moved to Boulder. Your, your husband's packing up his things and moving the house and the family and dogs and whatever, right, to Boulder. And you go, oh my God, like Glassdoor is a, is a brilliant business model. Like, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> but there's a level of public shaming that happens because if at any moment 
people are unhappy or leaving or, or, or need to transition, you're open the kimono, it's all out there, and it's only gonna be negative. So it's, it's, it's like going on like the worst parts of Twitter, which I have gone to, and they're hilarious, but not about you, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> but horrible, horrible. And so what's your, immediately re your immediate reaction gonna be when that happens? What do you do? You freak out, and you're like, ah. And so I remember late one night, I was talking to my husband, and I was like, why don't you log in to Glassdoor, <laughs> okay? And here's exactly, and then I was like, wait a minute. Like, is that who I wanna be? No, because if I do the right things by the business in the short term, this is going to be hell. It will be hell, it will be hell. So literally, I have blocked Glassdoor from, I cannot get to it from Chrome. There's a feature for that, just so everyone knows. Because it's not helping me build a better company right now. And so what, what we've done is we take, the, we take the iceberg seriously. So if people are interviewing and they're like, hey, what does this mean? Our, our team, individuals as well as um, our HR team, will walk them through it and say, here's the transformation that we've gone through. Hey, I've been here two years. I was here before Promise. Pre, there's a PPP, pre-Promise feel. Um, anyway, and so we, we're living it, but we are starting to, to external. I have a video I want to show you guys in a second here that starts to externalize that concept that we really are focused on building this together. And, and so the answer is, yeah, we are doing that. and need to do more of it, quite frankly. Uh, over here. Yo. The back. Raise a hand, maybe. I'm waving. There we go. Um, you, you, you mentioned a uh, 100-year company a couple of times. Yeah. What, what is your 100-year vision? My 100-year vision is, um, so, so we work with some really amazing companies. And one of the things that, that they're realizing is that marketing in a traditional sense doesn't work. People don't open email. Ads get blocked. Millennials don't trust, you know, pop-ups and whatnot. And our, our desire to be marketed to is declining. And I believe that's going to decline to zero over the next 100 years. And it's going to be about authenticity, connection, and social. And so my vision is for a company that allows consumers, the people in this room, influencers, advocates, ambassadors, champions, to create content and conversations on behalf of brands, but also to give those brands feedback. And so that's the company that we've built. And so over time, we believe that we will replace a lot of the quote unquote traditional ad revenue that companies spend on because I love Google and I wish I would have thought of that, but, and let me pick a fight with them a little bit here, which is they have a lot of smart people that are making it more difficult for us to have a low cost of acquisition. Can I get an amen from anyone? <laughs> but if you're a marketer and you're building marketing channels, what are you always thinking about? Optimization. Why doesn't it work? It doesn't work because the system is designed to make these things more expensive. But my vision is that as a consumer, I want to help you make a better buying decision. So I'm going to make it very easy for you to get access to my content. Um, I'm going to tell you when things don't work with another brand that I'm working with, or I might say, hey, this one's better for you. I believe that's where commerce is going to happen 10, 20, 30, 100 years from now. And so we're building that framework now. 
of um, helping brands connect with influencers and then do so in a way that's high performing and ties to revenue. Did I answer your question? I'll take the mic. Hey, promise, great presentation. Um, I just had a question in regards, you talked about the transition from service to SaaS. Just could you expand a little bit on that? Why'd you do it? What were some of your learnings from it? And uh, that'd be great. So I had done this before um, of a company that I had founded. And um, we were, we used, tech, we used services to help organizations, this is back in 2004, figure out who their most profitable customers were. And so we would use, um, uh, NPS data and a bunch of different data sources and we were crunching all of this and I'm like what if we just built a software that would just kind of do this for us and then you know emerge a SaaS company um, at tap it was a managed services so our team was using um, technology to help brands connect with influencers but we were acting on behalf as an agency and so that transition was pretty significant so all the way from the types of customers that you went after changed, so we have a new ideal customer profile, the kind of selling, the sales approach couldn't be like, you have a problem, let me just figure out how we can fix that, too. Here are the capabilities of our platform, and here's what it doesn't do and what it does do. So a lot of sales training, brought in a new sales organization, new sales team, marketing changed to be less about events, and so we're a big HubSpot customer, our mesh effectively gets so much money from us every month. I'm like, good job, man, <laughs> good job. I'm like, we're paying HubSpot what again? Um, but it, it was a complete. I know. <laughs> He's like, money for everyone, money for everyone. But um, yeah, so I mean, the biggest shift was, uh, was really twofold getting our customers to think about us differently, think about us as a technology company versus a managed services agency. And then the second was a technology focus, where it was less about adding on key features that would help make us more productive. <laughs> but we can now expose the product and make it self-service to the customers. It was very hard. And if anyone's doing that right now, I think the, most, the best place to start is to talk to your investors and say, this might go to zero. And it never did. We actually grew substantially. But um, it's tricky, and, um, but not impossible to do. Does that answer your question? Do you have any follow-up? Um, I'm going to ask a question, sorry. Um, which is about toxic culture. And there's been a lot of people talking about cultures that encourage certain kind of behaviors. And I suppose this is characterized as a kind of Silicon Valley thing sometimes, but it isn't, it's everywhere. You know, you have kind of frat house type um, companies that kind of spring up and grow and they're just attracting the same typically kind of white college kids as, as employees. How do you get around that? I'm not white. Um. I understand that. <laughs> so let's start there. I, I picked up, I, I know you tried to persuade okay, me that you were for Australian. Okay, I was like, where am I? <laughs> it's a parallel universe. Yeah, you know, uh, I mean, that's, culture is both what, what attracts and repels, right? Um, so, you know, in our culture, we have a no asshole rule. Um, we also have, um, I have a lot of women, and I, you know, am very protective of them. So there's a lot of shenanigans I do not allow inside the business because my goal is to grow their careers. Um, I also have an equal pay, an equal pay for equal work uh, 
methodology, which is, I don't care where you are, where you're from, if you can do the same work, you're gonna get the same paycheck. And it's hard because dudes are aggressive, you know, and um, some of that, you know, gets shaken out because those are the people who are first in line to say, pay me more. And what, what we have to calibrate constantly is that if we have that kind of culture, we're rewarding the wrong behavior. So I do want to reward people who are demanding about their success and the company's success, but I also have to teach the women who work inside of my organization to be just as aggressive. And so, um, I mean, I think the way that, you know, we get around it is, look, I, I'm different. And I, I appreciate difference. And I make sure, I, I, I work hard to get the company to also appreciate. So one of the things that um, our software does is it profiles influencers as they come in. And so we have, you know, you can profile as a man or as a woman and as, as race. And I kind of went back to the team and I was like, there's no transgender on here anywhere. What, 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 are, we doing? what are we doing? Um, there's also, there are people that I know who are African American who do not self-identify. And so, you know, what, what I hope to do, and again, this goes back to be the, the constant gardener, is I want to I show up differently. I want to be, be more uncomfortable. I want to accept the fact that we don't live in this world that is black and white, um, but it's be becoming more gray, and I think gray is good. Gray, gray is delicious. I promise, thank you for the personal stories, <laughs> first of all. And, and you're like, stop them, please. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> thank Actually, you. more. Um, the question is, how did you deal with resistance? Because I think that within the team, when you, you know, kind of started with the perks and you came in and, you know, the Silicon Valley girl and, you know, all that, how did you deal with that? How did you have that ownership culture brought in and people actually accept it? What are you really asking? Personal stories, I guess. More of, you know, people... Um, how did you start that conversation, and how did they, did they react? And if you saw resistance, what did you do? There's a lot of friction in the system, and so how I manage myself, I mean, I, I basically had three habits. I'm gonna work out every day, self-care, gotta do that, because you're walking into an environment where people, you know, if you're not in your game, it's impossible to get through a turnaround, it just is. So that was one. Um, two is I do a voice journal every night. And so when I get into my garage, I sit on my phone, I record for five minutes, like, here's what happened today, here's who I talked to, here's what I learned, here's what was terrible, here's what was great. And then on Sunday, I would go back and listen to that. And it was never, in retrospect, even a week away from it, as bad as it was in the moment, right? And then you start to see patterns. You start to see, oh, okay, interesting. This team has a lot of resistance to this. Like, why is that? Oh, okay, let me go talk to that group as a group. Okay, interesting, they don't have the right leader, they have fear of failure, they have, so in, in terms of how I managed myself, that was two. And then three, um, I think I just accepted the fact that it wasn't going to be easy. Like, and once you do that, it's like my first CrossFit workout, I remember my friend was like, you'll do fine. And I was like, another burpee, for real? Like, I'm gonna die here. <laughs> But I just accepted that it wasn't going to be easy. And if I had any, any ideas that it was going to be, you know, everyone's going to be happy and is going to love me through it, I just let all that go. I'm like, it's going to be hard. The parts of it are going to suck. I'm going to want to, you know, move back to the valley, but I'm not going to. And so it was self-care. It was constantly journaling and kind of, you know, looking at things in context and not reacting emotionally. 
And then third, it was just accepting the fact that this, I, I'm in the moment, this is what it is. This is exactly what, and it's gonna be great, but I'm not gonna forecast. I'm just gonna live in whatever it is right now and get through it. Amen. Uh, thank you. Um, uh, the question I have is, since you've worked at both large companies, larger companies, and you're taking over something and growing it, I personally observed that a lot of leaders, when they come in new and they have to change the culture, they struggle with being genuine. Like you see, you see leaders, you know, put out something, some kind of communication style that is completely different from what people have seen before, and there's a tendency to just dismiss it. Like this is not real. How how genuine is this? Can you comment about um, what makes the culture change of a leader genuine to the employees, as opposed to hmm. they're just they're just imposing what they learned somewhere in a book. Um, how, do, how do you make it real, that, you, that you're a real person? You know, even if you don't talk to that person at the lowest level who's on the line, uh, they feel a connection to you as a leader who's changing culture for them. Wow, that's good. It's a great question, and it's hard. Next question. <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't think, so, I transitioned out of founder in this in this situation, right? And that is massively unpopular, right? Uh, and what what I learned in that moment was that you know I can do the formal communication and follow all the bells and whistles, but I think there's something about just saying this sucks for me too. And I, I think leadership. Um, and I hope it's because the presence of diversity and women and, and, and millennials, leadership cannot be safe anymore. And I think if it is, then it's slicing off a lot of creativity. I think it's slicing off a lot of our own professional growth as leaders. And so what, I'm uncomfortable a lot, I'll put it that way. And I'm uncomfortable saying, you know what, so there was a, a hire I made and I'd been raising money and I came back to the office and there was a line outside my office and I was like, this is really weird. And they came in, they were like, she's not working. She's not working. And what are you gonna do and when? And I was like, negotiating term sheets and telling these people one story and I'm like, wait a minute, okay, okay. And they said, you know, we can't work, we can't work in this kind of environment if these three things are not, you know, if they're not there. If, if we can't trust you, if we can't trust our leaders, and if we can't believe that we're doing our best work. And so I was like, shit, you know what, I fucked up. This person, you know, needs to be coached. I need to get this person a professional coach, and I'm gonna have a real conversation with them. And so what, without, without ever breaking anyone's respect or the confidence or responsibility that we have as leaders, we can't expose people in our organizations, right? But I think we can, I think we can be accountable if, if they're giving us that feedback that a process or something else isn't working, we have to act quickly. Um, but I also believe it's okay to say, I screwed that up and I'll never do it again. Hold me accountable to that. So I don't think it's easy or comfortable, um, but I believe that the people who are joining companies like ours absolutely demand it. So you know, we do the quarterly now story time with Promise. I own that brand. Um, I do I do a, a, I do a breakfast and a lunch twice a week with different people in the organization. So I'll skip anyone, and um, I think that's two. 
And then three, um, there are points where, and this is unpopular, where I inject myself into the hiring process and just say, you know what, this is an important role. It's a front-end developer. Yeah, and I want to meet him. So I, I think there are ways to remain connected. All hands are ways to remain connected. We've gotten to the size now where um, I can't just be, I, I'm, not, I'm not the center of attention, it's the leadership team, but I sit in the audience. And so try to connect with different people like, hey, what do you think about that? Was that bullshit or was that real? And so I, I guess it's, there is no formula. Um, I think it's just being accessible and also having a portion of your time that's about, about the team. So um, it's hard because being a founder, there are sacrifices that they make that I will never be, uh, that I'll never be privy to. You know what I mean? Like as a founder, when I founded a company, like you know, we we forgo buying property, we forgo a bunch of things because I didn't take a salary. Like all these things, I don't know what sacrifices that they've made. And so, first of all, I just try to respect that. Like there's stuff that you've done that I don't I don't know. And um, what I did with my founders is I said, hey, what are your career what are your career objectives? Like, what are you trying to do? And then it was a tough discussion which said, look, there are going to be points where you disagree with what I do and what I say, and you can do that all day. But this is how, this is how we handle conflict between us. And if at some point that conflict becomes too much, then we have to part ways. Because A, I want to protect your legacy, and B, my responsibility is to the customer, not to, not to anyone else. And the customer comes first. And if anything that's happening inside the business reduces my ability to create customer value, I have a problem. So um, if that answers, I'm trying to be as vague as possible. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not getting in trouble. Thanks for listening to the Business of Software podcast. For more information, go to businessofsoftware.org.